I'd like to have you turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, and we'll look today at verses 19 through 23. While you're finding that text, let me tell you about a place that we're going to encounter here. It's really the whole point of the text. The modern day name is in Nazareth. It's called in the Bible, in the Gospels and Acts, Nazareth. Nazareth is far north of Jerusalem in what was formerly known as the northern kingdom of Israel. It actually was once a fairly large city for the time, but when the Assyrians invaded in 722 BC, the city was destroyed and those who were not killed were carried off into captivity and it basically went dormant. The town is an interesting, it's located in an interesting place. It's basically on the side of a hill. And it has an 1,150-foot drop, pretty steep drop. And it's 15 miles west of the Sea of Galilee. It's between the Sea of Galilee on this side, and uh, from your vantage point, and the Mediterranean Sea on the, on the other side. Toward the south and the southeast, Nazareth has a tremendous view of the entire Valley of Jezreel, which includes views of Mount Carmel and Mount Tabor. The Valley of Jezreel is important in biblical history. It's the largest and richest valley in all of Israel. It's named after the only town in the valley that the Israelites were able to conquer during the early part of the conquest. It's the site of the defeat of Saul and the Israelite army by the Philistines, in which King Saul was killed at Mount Gilboa, which is a, a border, borders the Valley of Jezreel and the Jordan River Valley. For many of the future wicked kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, the town of Jezreel, beginning with King Omri in 885 B.C., became kind of a winter palace. And in fact, it boasted this this high tower from which they could view the entire valley of Jezreel and they could look up and see Nazareth as well. Next to this famous high tower was a large and lush vineyard. During the days of King Ahab, that vineyard was owned by a man named Naboth. The same vineyard which Ahab stole after murdering Naboth. Nazareth also overlooks Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is famous as well. That's the site either on Mount Carmel or near it where the prophet Elijah had his famous spiritual battle with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah against the one true living God who consumed Elijah's sacrifice Nothing happened to the sacrifices of the false gods. And it also overlooks, Nazareth does, Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor is actually connected by a little ridge to Nazareth, this little narrow crest. The foot of Mount Tabor is the site of the epic victory of the Israelites under the command of Deborah and Barak over Sisera and the armies of the Canaanites in the book of Judges. And so it's interesting that that Nazareth is this little insignificant village at the top of a hill, and yet it's been silent witness to countless incredibly important events in Israel's long history. And as our text will point out this morning, the boy, Jesus, would be raised in this little town of Nazareth. The size of the town on the ridge would allow for a maximum of about 2,000 residents, but in Jesus' day it was probably just Two or three hundred, just a small little village. The primary industry was agriculture. Many of the villagers ran vineyards and ran uh, olive orchards. They produced wine and olive oil. That was a big deal in that area. And in fact, the slopes on different sides of the town were actually perfect for growing wheat and barley. And just to the south of town, there's a, a large field with very rich soil that worked well for growing all the vegetables needed for the town. It was an insignificant village. It was a poor village, like many near the Mediterranean, but it was, it was self-sufficient. It, it, it cared for itself. And yet it would still be considered inconsequential, unimportant. And as such, Nazareth is never mentioned by name in any non-Christian literature from the time of the Romans. And it wasn't even considered much at all by those in the local area either. The houses in the village were simple. They were made of local uncut stones that were stacked and stuck together and with mud. And then they had a a thatch roofing on every house. And it would have been a house like that that Jesus grew up in during his childhood years with an attached shop from which 
Joseph plied his trade as a carpenter, which, by the way, in that area, there wasn't a lot of wood. There was a lot of stone. So being a carpenter meant you not only knew how to work with wood, you knew how to work with stone. The steepest part of the ridge of Nazareth is called Mon Saltus Domini, meaning God's mountain forest. And this is most likely the hill from which the Jews later tried to throw Jesus Luke 4.29, they were willing to murder him after he read from the scriptures in the synagogue and pointed out that the scriptures were fulfilled in him. He was reading from Isaiah 61. And so Jesus is raised in this town which is so little known and yet it's been a silent witness to so much of Israel's history. Now, after sharing all this with you, you might say, so What? You wouldn't say it out loud, I'm sure, but you might say it in your mind. And that's really the question for us this morning. So what? We're continuing looking at the first coming of King Jesus in Matthew chapters 1 through 4. Or if I could refine the question, so what, just a little, we might ask this, why Nazareth? Was it just because it had a great view? Was that why Joseph and Mary lived there? Was it just so that he could be raised in a smaller intimate community probably not in fact being raised as jesus in the small intimate community of nazareth was no easy thing for him in previous messages we've seen that those who knew him and perhaps even lived near him believed something to be odd about the circumstances of his birth and everybody knew it you know how small towns are you know how bakersfield is everybody knows everything with the underlying current that Joseph was not his father. And so being raised in a small community in those circumstances would not necessarily be any sort of advantage at all. And yet Nazareth figures prominently in the character and the outworking of the first coming of Jesus Christ. And so our text this morning is going to demonstrate this character, and we're going to do it in terms of contrast. It's a contrast between how Jesus came the first time, and that's important for us because it helps us understand how he will come the second time. Jesus came to earth the first time in the lowly form of a baby. He'll return in completely opposite fashion. But it's not just that Jesus humbled himself by becoming, coming in the lowly form of a baby. He didn't come appearing as royalty or as a conquering hero. He came in utter plainness and ordinariness. He, he was ordinary. He came to earth intent on destroying one enemy, and that is the enemy of sin and death. And he would accomplish this by his voluntary death on the cross to be the substitute sacrifice for all who would place their faith in him for forgiveness of sin. And this is one of our our classic verses we love, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God the Father made Jesus to be sin. Even though Jesus was sinless and divine as the substitute for you and me, who really are, we are the epitome of sin. We are sin. And as part of accomplishing this, Jesus didn't come as royalty. He didn't come as a conquering hero. He came in humiliation. Several months after the birth of Christ, King Herod, the man hired by Rome to be king of Israel as part of Rome's occupation. You recall he attempted to kill Jesus and Joseph led his little family to Egypt to a Jewish settlement there until Herod died. And that's where we pick up our story. Chapter 2, verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying... Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then, after being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the district of Galilee. As the angel had guided Joseph to rescue young Jesus from Herod by fleeing down to Egypt. So the angel now gives the good news that Herod is dead. That's the good news. Joseph arrives in Israel. Herod's son is reigning in his place. That's the bad news. And so in this district of Galilee, which is north of Samaria, which is north of Judea, 
the three main areas in New Testament history. You have Judea to the south, where Jerusalem is. You have Samaria in the middle and Galilee to the north around the Sea of Galilee. Joseph and Mary return to their hometown. Verse 23, they came and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken through the prophets would be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. We know this was their hometown from Luke chapter 2 when the famous census was decreed when Mary was pregnant with Jesus. Luke 2, 4 says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee from the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house of the house and family of David. Now I mentioned earlier that the first coming of the king is very different than the second coming. So let's just use that as our outline this morning, our way to organize our thoughts. First, we want to look at the fact that Jesus came in humiliation. Jesus came in humiliation. And second, we'll look at the fact that Jesus will come again in exaltation. Jesus came in humiliation and Jesus will come again in exaltation. First, Jesus came in humiliation. So, the boy Jesus, little baby, is taken by his adoptive father Joseph to Nazareth, which is in the the southern part of the province of Galilee, the northern part of Israel. They're 70 miles north of Jerusalem at this point. Nazareth is considered to be outside the mainstream of the life of the Jews of Israel. They were were oddballs. They were the odd ducks. They were not with it with as far as uh, being with what all the rest of the nation was doing at any given time. In fact, it hosted a small Roman garrison in Jesus' day, and the Jews who lived there were sometimes seen as traitors for being that close to the invaders of Israel. But beyond that, Nazareth was also considered a place you kind of went to if you were a, sort of a rogue and an outcast. It, that was the place you went where nobody asked questions. They didn't ask about your background. So it's no wonder that people there were willing to throw Jesus off a cliff. They probably had thrown other people off that cliff. There was probably a little graveyard at the bottom and they weren't afraid of adding one more to it. But Jesus going to Nazareth is interesting because it's said to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Now why is that an interesting statement? Because there are no Old Testament prophecies to say that Jesus would be raised in the town of Nazareth. As a matter of fact, the town of Nazareth isn't even mentioned in the Old Testament. So how is it the prophets, plural, multiple prophets, have said that Jesus would be called a Nazarene? Nazareth is this small, insignificant town. It's unlikely to be the hometown of anybody famous, anybody noteworthy. And so is being called a Nazarene just saying, well, he's just from a small town nobody's heard of. No, it's much worse than that. And we'll get to that. But again, the pressing question is, how can Jesus be called a Nazarene by the prophets of the Old Testament when no prophet actually said this? Well, let's break this down. First of all, prophets, here in verse 23, this is plural, means that the author, Matthew, is making a collective statement of several Old Testament prophets. It doesn't necessarily mean he has one specific Old Testament passage in mind. Second thing we could break down here is that Matthew is very precise. He doesn't use the usual quotation formula. It, it doesn't say here, so that what was, say, what was spoken through the prophets would be fulfilled when they said or saying he shall be called a Nazarene. It doesn't say that. It just says what was spoken through the prophets would be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. It's not quoting a specific passage or passages, but it's a summary of a theme. It's a summary of a broad expectation. And what is this broad theme? What is this expectation? It's that Jesus would not come the first time with a royal bearing and with the power of a kingly Messiah. Instead, he would come in lowliness and degradation and humiliation. What did the prophets say? Let's consider a few. Consider Psalm 22. Psalm 22, 1 is quoted by Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Later in Psalm 22, beginning in verse 6, 
But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. That's what happened when Jesus was on the cross. People walking by and look at him. If he's God, then let God save him. How about Psalm twenty-two, sixteen? A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. That's the crucifixion. Incidentally, a description of crucifixion that is incredibly accurate hundreds of years before it was invented. Or consider Isaiah 53, very familiar to us, prophecy of the coming Messiah. Verse 2, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This says that Jesus wasn't even particularly handsome. He was plain. He was ordinary. And beyond that, he was despised. He, he was not esteemed by his brothers, by the, his, by the Jews. Or we could consider Zechariah 11, verse 12. Zechariah 11, verse 12 is the passage that says that the coming Messiah would be sold out for the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver, and that this money would be thrown into the temple of the Lord, but then given to the potter. Now, what does that mean? It's given to the potter. Well, Matthew 27 records that after Judas sold out Jesus, yes, for 30 pieces of silver that were given to him by the religious leaders, he he regretted what he had done. It wasn't true repentance unto salvation. It was just regret and guilt. He tried to give the money back. But the chief priests and the elders wouldn't take it. So, So Judas threw the money down into the temple and he went and he hanged himself. But the leaders didn't want blood money. They couldn't hang on to it in their self-righteousness. So they they took the money and they bought a piece of land called the potter's field. And they used it to bury strangers. That was what Jesus was worth. A place to bury unclaimed bodies. That was the worth of his life in their estimation. Those are just a few prophets. The point is, is that Matthew's emphasizing Jesus coming from Nazareth as his hometown as opposed to his birthplace of Bethlehem, the town that is called the city of David, the town that forms kings. Instead, he came from Nazareth. That's the place where nobodies come from. Coming from Nazareth was an insult. It was an embarrassment. Coming from Nazareth was like being called backwards or redneck or hillbilly or not really part of us or ignorant or no account or worthless or plain or lowly. And so just to be clear, when Matthew says that Jesus would be called a Nazarene, he's not merely saying that Jesus would grow up in Nazareth. Nazarene is an epithet. It's a derogatory nickname for somebody who's backwards, who's a redneck, who's a hillbilly, who's not really part of us, who's ignorant, no account, worthless, plain and lowly. Jesus, the Nazarene, is an insult. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, as he was calling his 12 disciples, Jesus went back to Galilee, that province in the north, same province where Nazareth was, and he found Philip from the city of Bethsaida, the same city on the coast of the Sea of Galilee that Peter and his brother Andrew had come from. And Philip followed Christ, and he believed that Jesus was the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. And in his evangelistic concern, he went to Nathanael, and he said to Nathanael, as recorded in John 1.45, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. But when Philip said the of Nazareth part, this was offensive to Nathanael. And you recall what Nathanael said. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You can almost hear the scorn and the... The sneer. Nazareth? You had me right up to that point. 
Even the demons in Galilee looked down on Jesus the Nazareth, Jesus the Nazarene. Luke 4.31 records that when Jesus was in Capernaum, a city in Galilee, he was teaching on the Sabbath. And and again, the the people were astonished at his teaching. He taught with authority. And Luke 4.33 begins, And in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? It was an insult. Jesus the Messiah did not introduce the kingdom with pomp and pageantry and splendor like a great earthly king. Instead, in keeping with prophecy, he came as the loathed and shunned and scorned servant of the Lord. Jesus was not known as Jesus the Bethlehemite born in the royal city of David, the great king. Instead, he was known as the Nazarene. A word said with a sneer, with mocking, with scorn, with laughter, with the roll of the eyes. Jesus came in humiliation. And this is so wonderful for us. Why is that wonderful for us? Because Psalm 8.4 asks of God, What is man that you are mindful of him? Psalm 103, beginning in verse 14 Tells us, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. We're dust, we're grass that's just blown away in our own mortality. But Jesus came to be one like us. He came as one of us. He came as Hebrews 4.15 says, as one who can sympathize with all of our weaknesses. But make no mistake, the Nazarene was the Son of God, perfect and sinless in every way, and therefore He's the only sacrifice for sins that God would accept on your behalf to pay the rightful penalty for all the countless sins that you've committed against the Holy Lord of the universe. But soon the Nazarene, the no account, The unknown, the plain, the lowly will be fully known because while Jesus came in humiliation, Jesus will come again in exaltation. He'll come again in exaltation. I won't have you turn there because we'll be going all over the place, but Isaiah 49 pictures the Son of God speaking to Israel and telling of the decree and the mission that God the Father has given to him. Isaiah 49.1 says that God the Father would unite the Son of God with a human nature in the womb of a woman and would give him a human name. And we know that name as Jesus. Verse 5 of Isaiah 49 says that the Son of God would eventually regather his people Israel. But what I want to point out is Isaiah 49.7. You might make a note of that reference because in this one verse is contained the nature of both the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Both of them. Listen to the first coming. It's found in the first half of Isaiah 49, 7. Thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, the slave of rulers. When Matthew was writing, Matthew 2, 23, what did you call someone who was deeply despised and abhorred by his own nation? A Nazarene. Here's the second half of Isaiah 49, 7. This describes the second coming of Christ. Kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because of Yahweh who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. When Jesus returns at the end of the great tribulation that is yet to come, He's going to judge all the nations, meaning all the individuals in those nations who refuse to follow Him. And then his kingdom will be set up so that he'll bless these nations and Jesus is going to be exalted. And in fact, just from Isaiah 49, 7, from this one verse, we can extrapolate three ways that the exaltation of King Jesus will be very clear to the world. It shows his exaltation to the nations. It shows his exaltation to the kings of the nations. And it shows his exaltation as the King of Israel, the Holy One of Israel. And I'd like to just slow down for a minute and use Isaiah 49, 7 as a springboard 
to show you those three ways that King Jesus will be exalted. And this, we can do this just from Isaiah. Now, this is like doing this with one hand tied behind your back. Just Isaiah. First, his exaltation to the nations. And we have to subdivide that, his exaltation to the nations even further into the fact that he's exalted in his judgment and he's exalted in his rule. So let's subdivide that. His exaltation to the nations, exalted first in his judgment. Isaiah 17, 13. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he will rebuke them and they will flee far away, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. Isaiah 25, 3. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. Isaiah 29, 7 and 8. God promises Israel that all who fight against Jerusalem will eventually just be to Israel like a bad dream because Messiah will defend her. Isaiah 30, verse 28, Jesus will sift the nations with the sieve of destruction. Isaiah 34, 2, for the indignation of Yahweh is against all the nations and his wrath against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over to slaughter. And how strong is Christ compared to the nations? Isaiah 40, 15 says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust. Two verses later in verse 17, Isaiah 40 says, All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. And after Jesus has returned and wiped out all of his enemies, the survivors, those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, they'll go out and they'll see the result. Isaiah 66, 24, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. But then after being exalted in his judgments, Jesus will be exalted in his rule, in his perfect benevolent rule over the world. And, and I'm just going to plow through some verses in Isaiah here. Isaiah 42.1, he will bring forth justice to the nations. 42.6 calls Jesus a light to all the nations. 43.9, all the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Then now Christ is the focal point of everything. Everyone knows who Jesus is. Isaiah 45, 20, assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. And this is to wipe away spiritual ignorance and, and they'll behold Jesus as the true and living God. There will be no more debates about the existence of Christ ever. Isaiah 52, 10, all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. 52, 15, he'll sprinkle many nations, meaning he'll spiritually cleanse them. Isaiah 60, verse 3, nations shall come to your light. Isaiah 60, verse 6, says that the nations will send their gifts, the best products of the land, not as a forced tax, but as a loving gift to Messiah. Isaiah 66, 19, says that God will send messengers all over the world to those who have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. And Jesus will live up to another nickname, the Prince of Peace. He's the one that will make this happen. Isaiah 2, 4, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. We think of Isaiah eleven ten. The nations will come to hear the wisdom of Christ. They'll, they'll inquire of Him and what Isaiah calls His glorious resting place. And Isaiah 14, 26 summarizes, this is the purpose that is purpose concerning the whole earth and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. But this isn't just a general principle that Jesus will be exalted in the nations both through his judgment and his rule. There's a more specific principle that he'll be exalted to kings. He'll be exalted to the rulers of the nations. So let's look now at his exaltation to kings. Isaiah 24, 21, On that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. In other words, after the judgment by Christ on the earth, there won't be a single ruler left on earth against Christ. Can you imagine that? If you read the news, you just dream of that. Can you imagine if every world leader was a believer in Christ and, and looked to the word of God for their wisdom? It would be a different world. 
Kings will no longer be arrogant. They'll no longer be power hungry. Isaiah 52, 15, Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Isaiah 60, 11 says that the king will lead, kings will lead processions of nations into Jerusalem to bring the wealth and the gifts of the nations to Christ. Isaiah 63, kings will come to the brightness of your rising. And 66, 18 For I know their works and their thoughts and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and shall see my glory. But Jesus' exaltation is tied directly to the coming exaltation of Israel herself. Jesus, after all, is the king of Israel and he will be king in the capital nation of all the earth. And so let's just look and see what Isaiah says about his exaltation as the king of Israel. Isaiah eleven twelve. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth that the nations will be signaled somehow to regather Israel as a nation. If you want to know how is God going to regather Israel, this is how. He's going to use everybody else to do it. Isaiah 49, 23. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens, your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet that the rulers of the earth will love and they'll serve Israel. Isaiah 62, beginning in verse 2, speaking of Jerusalem, which is currently, by the way, uh, on the top 10 list of most hated cities, number one right now. Isaiah 62, 2. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory and you will be called by a new name which the mouth of Yahweh will designate. You will also be a crown of glory in the hand of Yahweh and a a turban or a crown of royalty in the hand of your God. Isaiah 60 verse 10 says that foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. That the nations will gladly serve and build up Israel, build up Jerusalem. That after the destruction of the great tribulation, the nations will gather into the greatest construction project of all time. And that is to make a new nation. Isaiah 49 6, God the Father says to God the Son, You shall be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. In Isaiah 49, 22, God says to Israel, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and make high my standard to the peoples like a flag. And they shall bring your sons in their bosom and your daughters shall be lifted up on their shoulders that the nations will delight in physically bringing perhaps even the children, the boys and girls who are Jews, to New Jerusalem, to New Israel, rather. Isaiah 60, verse 11 says of Jerusalem, your gates shall be open continually, meaning there's no more security problems. Day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. The descendants of those who have hated Israel will repent. They'll serve Christ They'll demonstrate this by bowing at the feet of Jerusalem, as it were. Isaiah 60, verse 14 says, The sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you, and all those who spurned you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet, and they will call you the city of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Why will the nations, why will the kings be so gloriously loving to Israel? Because God decreed it. Again, Isaiah 49, 7. Thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, first coming. Kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because of Yahweh who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Second coming. Don't be fooled by the fact that Jesus was despised, abhorred by his own nation, the servant of rulers. Don't be fooled by the fact that Jesus is the Nazarene. Because someday the nations and the kings will bow low before him. When Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew, 
It was the first account ever written of the life of Christ. And Matthew was written very early on in the life of the church, probably around 40 AD or maybe a few years after, just over a decade after the ascension of Christ, basically. It was written somewhere between the events of Acts 8 and 12, which means beyond that time, Christian Jews, to whom Matthew was first written, Christian Jews would be very familiar with this gospel. And listen carefully. When they read that Jesus would be called a Nazarene, they knew exactly what they meant. They didn't go, oh, isn't that interesting? He was, he was raised in the north. No, they were like, ooh, he's a Nazarene. Acts 24 records that two decades or so after the writing of Matthew, the Apostle Paul was on trial before Governor Felix with the high priest of Israel trying to help get Paul condemned as a believer in Jesus Christ. And the wicked leaders of Israel, they sent a spokesman named Tertullius, basically a lawyer. They sent Tertullius to make the case to Felix against Paul. And Tertullius accuses Paul of being a leader of the Christian Jews. And he has a nickname. He has an insult for these Christian Jews. Tertullius states to Governor Felix about Paul in Acts 24, 5, quote, For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. It was an insult. That's what the unsaved call Christians, Nazarenes. Those who associate with the Nazarene. And of course we know that that's the deal, isn't it? That if you will associate yourself with the Nazarene, that if you will believe that Jesus came to earth in humble form and died a humiliating criminal's death on the cross in order to satisfy the payment for your sin on your behalf, then the Lord Jesus Christ will associate with you. When He is exalted and ruling the world in His coming glory, we, we try hard around here to try to avoid the, the often used salvation phrase that I accepted Jesus. Because you see, you accepting Jesus was not the question. The question is, would Jesus accept you? So that's the question. It's the question for anyone hearing this. Will you be associated with the Nazarene? Because if you won't, the consequences are eternal. Jesus said in Mark 8, 38, for whoever is ashamed of me And my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus is making a very simple statement here. If you refuse to be in Christ, to be forgiven of your sins, and to be associated with the Nazarene, he will not associate with you. And then you will hear the words spoken prophetically, Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty three. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What is he saying? I never knew you. He is fulfilling that you would not associate with me, therefore I will not associate with you. And so to avoid this, you must come as a Nazarene with no account, as plain, as, as worthless, as lowly, as what Titus 3, 5 says, that he saved us not by works done in righteousness. As Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, that salvation is not of yourselves, not of works. Or to put it like Peter did in 1 Peter 5, 5, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to whom? The humble. You must come to the Nazarene as a Nazarene because the Nazarene is now known as the King of all the kings and the Lord of all the lords. He is now known as Almighty God. He is now known as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the one who died and lives forevermore. I'd like to put one more nail in this. We have an account of Jesus, in essence, putting his humiliation and his exaltation together in a life-altering, watershed eternal decision-making moment for one man who hated the early church. And that man's name was Saul. Saul of Tarsus. I want to take some time on this. Turn with me to Acts chapter 9, if you would. And beginning in Acts 9, I'd like to show you the three accounts 
of the conversion of Saul, also known as Paul. The first in Acts 9 is the event itself, described by Luke, the author of Acts, and the second two are descriptions given by Paul himself after the fact, after his salvation. Now, each account includes some unique details, but they're very easily harmonized together. So here in Acts 9, the emphasis is more on what happens after his conversion. So the conversion experience is, is summarized. Acts 9, beginning in verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, it happened that when he was approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul asks the question of a lifetime. The most important question he's ever asked in his life. Who are you, Lord? And the summarized answer is simply, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Meaning that the crucified Jesus was not only alive, but he was heavenly and glorious and powerful. And that by harming the church, he was attacking, Paul was attacking the very Son of God. We get more details in another account. Turn to Acts 26. Acts 26, verse 12. Paul has now been arrested and he's giving a defense to the Roman king of the area, King Agrippa, and he begins by telling Agrippa just how heinous and wicked he had been against the Christians before his salvation. Acts 26, verse 12. While so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Again, this momentous of, most momentous of all questions, who are you, Lord? And again, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And a key detail, by the way, we get here is this phrase that, that Paul fills in to the summarized account from Acts 9 when Jesus said, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. What's a goad? A goad is a, it's not, just, it's not a goat if you have a cold and you say goat. A goad was a stick with a, a sharp pointy end. It, it was like, it looked like a, a stick with a fang sticking out of there, maybe a nail or, or a bit of bone. It acted like a spur, and you, you whacked the side of an animal with that thing to make it go where you wanted it to go. It was very effective that about, with letting an animal know, I'm serious about where I want you to go. But Jesus pictures Paul as kicking against the goads, that, that the Spirit of God was, was whacking him, and he didn't want to worship Jesus. In fact, Saul the senior is stubborn and obstinate and willful in his unbelief. Anybody who says salvation is... A free will choice has not asked Paul. He was knocked down seeing a light from heaven and Jesus saying, took us a while to get here, didn't it? You've been kicking against the goads. That's just a side note. In both accounts, Saul has asked this momentous question, who are you, Lord? And Jesus has given the answer, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But both of those accounts Give a summary. Because in the third account we'll look at, there's an implied ultimatum. There is a question. Are you going to be for me or are you going to be against me? Are you going to associate with me? Are you going to identify with me? Are you going to be everything that I am? Are you going to be who I am? Or will you be against me? Turn to Acts 22. Back just a few pages. Paul has been given the opportunity to address an unruly crowd of Jews in Jerusalem who are opposed to Paul and his message. 
And he's standing on an outdoor stairway above the people. In fact, turn back one uh, verse to the very end of 21. We'll start the story in verse 40, chapter 21, verse 40. And when he had given them permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, Men, brothers and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even quieter. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, and having been brought up in the city, this city, having been instructed at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strictness of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brothers and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. But as it happened that I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. There's a, an ultimatum in that. I am Jesus, the Nazarene. Are you going to associate with me or not? Are you going to keep kicking against the goads? Are you going to get up off the ground and say, I will not associate with a Nazarene? Jesus put his humiliation and his exaltation together in one event. One event. Jesus, the Nazarene, the Jews to whom Paul was preaching from this staircase would certainly get this reference and they would know this is not a name that you proudly called yourself. And for Paul, this was the moment which Jesus identified himself as both the lowly one who is the exalted one. Meaning that Paul couldn't just say, well, of course, now that you're exalted, I mean, now that I know who you really are, now I'll associate with you. Jesus doesn't give him that out. No, will you associate with me? Yes, the exalted one, but also the Nazarene. He must follow Jesus the Nazarene. He must become a Nazarene. Did he? Well, Paul became a model of what it means to be a Nazarene. In Philippians 3, Paul highlights how super righteous he was as a Jew. He said in Philippians 3, 5, he was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. And what did he think of all that now? He goes on to say, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, garbage, refuse, so that I may gain Christ. In Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul calls himself in Greek the pratas, the first, the greatest of what? Of sinners. The first among sinners, the greatest among sinners, the chief of sinners. Paul is a Nazarene. What about little Nazareth? That town that tried to throw Jesus off a cliff when he revealed his identity as the Messiah, the Son of God in the synagogue. Archaeologists have found remains of an ancient Byzantine era church, but that was more imported to the area. Under the remains of that church, archaeologists have also found a walled structure which fits the exact description of a typical Galilean synagogue. Now, you might say, well, there's a bunch of those, and that's true. We don't know if that's the same synagogue which Jesus famously read from Isaiah 61, but the walls are covered in what is called by archaeologists, at least, Christian graffiti. 
The graffiti is in Greek and Aramaic. Those are the languages spoken during the time of Christ. And it clearly identifies the building as being occupied and used now by followers of Jesus Christ during the very early church era. And in fact, the synagogue's mikvah, which was a a small pool used for Jewish ceremonial washing, it had been revamped, it had been transformed into what we would call a baptistry. Why did they need a baptistry? Because there were converts from Nazareth coming to faith in Christ. You know what that means? It means that some of the Nazarenes truly became Nazarenes. And that some of the very ones who tried to throw Jesus off a cliff are even now in the halls of heaven worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, baptized on this earth, not far from where they tried to murder the one who had become their savior. What's the point of all this? It's a very simple point. If Jesus didn't become a Nazarene, then you can't either. But he did, and so you may. That's the whole point. I praise the Lord for Matthew 2.23, that he became a Nazarene. He became just like us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you now, just again, our hearts, our minds, full of truth and joy. How delightful it is, Lord, to see that you had a perfect plan to bridge the gap, the, the eternal gap between holy, invisible God and unholy, fleshly people. By bridging that gap through your Son, holy, visible God, now come in the flesh, who came in lowliness, who came as a Nazarene, one to be insulted, one to be laughed at, to be mocked, scorned, said with a sneer, And yet he is now exalted as the king of all the kings, the Lord of all the lords, preparing even now for his great return. And so, Lord, I pray for a man or a woman or perhaps a boy or a girl who knows in their heart after hearing this message that the Spirit of God is stirring within them, that they know in their hearts that they have pride, that they are proud of who they are and that they have looked with some scorn and disdain on this whole Jesus thing and that they are realizing even at this moment that Jesus the Nazarene the one against whom so many stood is their only hope and so I pray even in these moments that they would turn to Christ the Nazarene who is also our King and Savior we thank you and praise you for the gospel presented in so many ways in scripture countless angles from which to understand how to know Christ. May we live our lives as Nazarenes, as those who are humble and lowly, for it is not we who live, but Christ lives in us. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.